Well, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs chapter uh, 23. Proverbs chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab that pew Bible or the Bibles in the chair. You can find our passage on page 544. Page 544. As we continue in our series that we've entitled The Seven uh, Deadly Sins. And over the last three weeks, uh, we have invested time coming face to face with two indispensable truths. Truth number one that hopefully you've heard over and over again, no matter what we're talking about, is that every one of us are sinners. Uh, We uh, fall to sin. And as Christians, uh, the second indispensable truth that we need to understand is while we want to fight against sin, while the Bible commands us to run away from sin, while we would say that sin is evil, will only do us harm and not good, we find ourselves overwhelmingly attracted to the very things that we are commanded and told to stay away from. And as a result of that, our lives are filled with struggle, our lives are filled with guilt and shame, instead of the abundant life that God has called us to in Christ Jesus. And so here's the thing, as we look at these seven sins over these next couple uh, months, we need to recognize that while we may be defeated, while we may find ourselves broken over our sin, God did not intend for us to live this way. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have uh, given your life to Christ in a relationship with him, then you don't have to live in defeat. Uh, This series of messages should not bring you down, but it should remind you and encourage you that because of the work of Christ Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his modeling of holiness throughout his years here in perfection on earth, uh, the seven deadly sins should not be a series that causes defeat and distress, but it should announce to us once again that Jesus Christ is victorious over all our sins, over all our struggles, over all the things that we find ourselves doing, even at times when we don't want to. We come this morning to what I would like to call an insidious foe, a foe that is subtle, a foe that is silent to the one who gives it a foothold. Today we speak on a subject that will make many of us nervous. It's a, a subject matter that many of us will, will want to look and to uh, prejudge others around us because it's one of those that it's easy to point blame. Today we talk on the subject of gluttony and doing so under the heading this morning of when too much of a good thing becomes sin. When too much of a good thing becomes sin. To do so, I'm going to ask that you would turn, if you haven't already, to Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at this passage. And as you're turning there, I want you uh, to be very careful to listen to what I say this morning. Because you'll be able to take parts of my message and pull them out of context and use it in all manner of ways. And I, and I just beg upon you, I implore you to be able to listen to all that I say within the context of which I say it. And then not to then quickly move to the other person next to you or even uh, maybe yourself, uh, but to ask some questions within the freedom and the love and the grace, but also the commands of Scripture. 
and to do so soberly. So I give you all these things, knowing you're smart people, who God has given brains to, to work through these things in a way that will glorify and honor God. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1 through 8 is our text this morning. Let me read it and ask for God's blessing on our time. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Other translations say given to gluttony. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are a deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your blessing on the reading and hearing of your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity as a church to lift up with one voice praises to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But now, Lord, we come and we open up your word and a passage and and a subject matter that for many of us could be viewed as a struggle. Something that maybe we don't even think about, that we don't take stock of. But Lord, I'm so thankful that in your word, you address these things for our good. And so I pray, Lord, that you would teach us. I pray, Lord, where there is need, you would convict us. And Lord, where there is sin, that you would forgive us. So that we might experience your grace and mercy. Teach us this morning, Lord. Teach us what you will have your people to know and to hear so that we may move forward glorifying and honoring you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. With a footprint bigger than our entire building here at the Sugar Grove campus, the Bacchanal Buffet at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas boasts the largest and most expansive buffets in all of the world. At a mere $50 per person, you can enjoy breakfast, lunch, or dinner and have every one of your food desires met. Offering more, listen to this, offering more than 500 different entrees at breakfast, another 500 at lunch, and another 500 at dinner. Some of you want to take off right now. You can experience every nationality of food. You can experience every taste of food from the mundane and the normal, if you will, to the highly exotic. You will never walk away disappointed. If you have a craving for something, you will find it. With the most talented of chefs, you will enjoy the finest delicacies known to man. And you don't just simply have to just get a taste of it. You can have all you want. One of their signs says in the, in the buffet, you never have to leave. What an amazing place. 
When asked why would Caesar's palace need such an expansive and extravagant dining experience, the food and wine manager there put it this way. We live in a world and in a time where people want what they want, when they want it, how they want it, and at their disposal and on demand. And we are here to serve those desires and send them home satisfied. They understand who we are. They understand our need to be filled. And they said, bring your desires, bring your wants, and we will fill them. We will satisfy you in all ways, shapes, and forms. But here's the problem. The sin of gluttony is not found simply in the excess of Las Vegas casinos. It can be found all over, all over the place. In fact, our team found a picture... <laughs> of one of our own. Not only does he play a satanic instrument called the drums, but he's also given to great gluttony. Pray for this man. You all right, John? Yeah, you could just close with prayer. I mean... No, the sin of gluttony is all over the place. And thank you for your good sense of humor, John, with that. Gluttony is the American way, isn't it? We just can't get enough of good things. In fact, I received this email on the subject when I was preparing for the sermon on gluttony this week. I got an email that showed me this. Look at, look at this thing. I was told, Tim, hey, show up to the Olive Garden. We've got the never-ending pasta bowl for $9.99. By the way, as a caterer, I don't know how they make any money. If, if I go in there, I'm going to eat more than 10 pounds or 10 pounds. 10, I will eat 10 pounds. <laughs> $10. That's a Freudian slip if there ever was one. $10 of pasta. And, and, and here's the thing. We love that kind of stuff. And who, who wouldn't want to eat a great pasta and great sauces? It, it tastes so good going down. It's so, such an enjoyable experience. And yet we live in a world where we can't get enough of a good thing. To show moderation or to show some self-control is an affront to our American way, to our senses. But that's exactly what God is telling us this morning when it comes to gluttony. Well, many of you have heard me warn you against the sinful indulgences, the sinful indulgences that we have. Rarely do we talk about the sin of indulgence. Those are two different things. The scriptures tell us, put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Yet how many Christians today would even consider gluttony a sin? Gluttony is one of those ambiguous, seven deadly sins that we need to talk about. It's the sin that started it all for humanity. Did you know that by carefully looking at the story of creation, by the story of Adam and Eve, we will learn... That the issue of sin wasn't a sin of violence in the garden. It wasn't a sin revolving sexual immorality. It wasn't a sin of a lying tongue. The sin of Adam and Eve was that though they had been given all that they needed to live and to prosper and to enjoy life, enough just wasn't enough. 
Did you know that, that the sin of gluttony is what threw us in to sin as humanity? You see, God said, hey, you've got all this. You, you have everything that you need, anything that you could ever want. And with a gluttonous heart, they said, but wait a minute. We want the one thing we can't have. We don't think you've given us enough to enjoy. And so, like adulterers, they turned away from all that God had given them and pursued a mistress of something more. And because of that, it would throw them into sin. And it would throw us into sin. And here's the problem. We, like our parents in the garden, have sought to go our own ways. Instead of enjoying the things that God has given us, we move our own way and say, but Lord, I, I, I know you said I could have this, but I want more of it, or I want something different than what you've given. And a gluttonous heart keeps us from the abundant life that God wants us to have. But the Bible helps us towards freedom. It speaks to our gluttonous hearts and our gluttonous desires, and it tells us how we can take the things that God has given which are good without creating gods out of the gifts he's given. To do so, we've got to do a couple things this morning. First of all, it begins by putting a gluttony in its proper place. By putting gluttony in its proper place. If I was to ask any number of you what gluttony is, I would get a whole myriad of definitions. If I was to ask you, what does gluttony look like? I think the they, uh, illustrations would abound. We've got all different manner of ideas and thoughts of what gluttony is and, and what it looks like. Where is the line that crosses from eating uh, to live and living to eat? Where is that line? And we need to be careful about that. But I want you to notice, first of all, that while the lines may be blurred, the Bible speaks very clearly about the subject of gluttony. Notice uh, the full meaning, first of all. We've got to know its full meaning. The Latin word for the word glutton literally means to gulp down. To gulp down. And, and, and to help us, the Bible speaks of a glutton, but it never addresses what they've done or any kind of descriptions, it, like the word sluggard for a lazy individual, just kind of puts this general title out there and says, hey, don't be this, but it doesn't give all kinds of subpoints exactly what it would look like. And so here's what we need to understand about gluttony. Gluttony has a very simple definition that I want you to remember. Gluttony is unrestrained overconsumption. Unrestrained over consumption like the drinker who himself is filled with drink and turns drunk the glutton is one who fills himself or herself to capacity or beyond notice the word in that definition unrestrained at the heart of a glutton is the lack of self-control the ability or desire to stop oneself it is the sin of lax consumption in the manner of all things. But what things in particular? Let's notice a couple things where gluttony finds itself. Notice the masks. The masks that gluttony wears. The first one, it has to do, of course, with our eating. With our eating. Well, the Bible is clear that gluttony can be found at the dinner table. It's a much larger issue. But let's deal with the issue at hand. The issue of eating. Now, part of the issue of gluttony is that it is frequently mistaken for the issue of obesity. Not all those who are overweight are gluttons, and not all gluttons are overweight. Let me explain. 
Thomas Aquinas, uh, the Catholic theologian, put it this way. Gluttony denotes not any desire of eating or drinking or the amount, but the inordinate desire or focus on food. Uh, leaving uh, the order of, of reason, he goes on to say, wherein the good of moral virtue consists. Now here's the problem. We as Americans have a problem with food. And I am the least of the spokesmen who should be speaking about this. And yet, it's a problem that we struggle with. I need to preach this truth, and I've had to preach this truth, not only, listen, not only as a partaker of food, but one who makes food, who's always around food, who makes a good portion of my living because of food. And yet we need to recognize this morning that in an on-demand food world that we live in, food can be a problem. We live as kings and queens. We eat when we're happy. We eat when we're sad. We eat when we're hungry. We eat when we're full. But I want you to notice this morning that while overeating could be a sign of gluttony, many scholars say that's only part of the story. William Willimon, in his book, Sinning Like a Christian, puts it this way. Gluttony plagues all manner of people. He goes on to say the following. He, uh, gluttony plagues the person who carefully weighs the carbs in their diet, who relentlessly scans the fat content of the portions, or who drives all manner of miles to buy exclusively organic food. It plagues that individual as much as it plagues the beer-gutted, t-shirt-wearing, wing-eating lug. Why? Because gluttony is an overestimation of the place of food in our lives. Aquinas, when telling uh, the Catholic Church how not to fall to gluttony, said that gluttony could be found in eating too much. It could be found in eating too little. It could be found in eating too daintily. It could be found in eating too sumptuously. All manner of food, whatever area you come from around the dinner table, you can find yourself a glutton and sparingly be eating all the while. We are a people who are either eating way too much or in the $53 billion diet industry eating way too little. We are altogether way too concerned about the issue of food in our lives. That's why uh, the danger of gluttony has nothing to do with simply flabby waistlines. But gluttony is a disease that leads to flabby souls. Too often we separate the physical from the spiritual. And what we need to recognize is the habits of our body and what we eat can have profound effects on our spiritual souls. One writer put it this way, physical appetites are an analogy of our ability to control ourselves. If we are unable to control our eating habits, then we are probably unable to control all other habits. If we are unable to control what goes in or what we keep from our mouths, so we will with our minds with regards to lust, covetousness, and anger, nor will we be able to keep our mouths from gossip or strife. In my own life, I must confess that I've seen gluttony become an idol. 
While I would hope that I would not have some worshipful relationship with food, I must again contend that food is always around me. Every day I go to work, it's there. Everywhere I go in a catering event, food is there. But my issue with food, and hopefully one that you might be able to understand, is that food is all around. I was just simply watching a sitcom this last week and watched the commercials, and I want you to know that more than 75% of the commercials that were shown in a 30-minute time frame had to do with food. We love food. And so we drive by uh, the uh, roadway, and what do we see? Food in our gas stations, food in our grocery stores, food in fast food places. We have all manner of places that we can have food on demand. And the problem is we eat without ever at times thinking about why we're doing it. But before you think that gluttony is only for the stout... Let me be clear, gluttony's all around. Chris Donato uh, wrote this in a Ligonier uh, article on gluttony. He says, two mistakes accompany most discussions on gluttony. The first, that it only pertains to those with less than a shapely waistline. The second is that it always involves simply food. In reality, it applies to our toys, television, entertainment, sex, and relationships. Gluttony is the excess of anything so we've got the eating down and some of us need to look at our eating habits and some of us need to to take stock and recognize that what we put in our mouths is a spiritual issue but i would not be a truthful pastor if i didn't tell you there are other areas of gluttony second being entertainment entertainment With the on-demand entertainment we have, we have created a new word that connects our understanding of our entertainment to our food consumption. We have Netflix now. And what do we do when we sit down and for hours upon end watch a certain program? We call it binge-watching. That phrase binge comes from the idea of binge-eating. And because of on-demand technology that we have, we can sit for hours consuming all manners of entertainment. Football is going to be beginning here pretty soon. And America is going to devote, listen, during the first couple weeks of football season, the average football fan will spend seven hours on a Sunday watching football. Seven hours. That doesn't even involve Saturday with college football. That doesn't involve Monday night football and Tuesday and Wednesday night football and Thursday night football. For our ladies who watch Downton Abbey and the three guys who would admit to watching it themselves. (laughs) To get through the last season meant you spent 33 hours watching television. 33 hours. In fact, uh, let's go ahead and throw this slide up. I think we've got it in here. An average day of TV watching now eclipses five hours for the average American. Five hours. And here's always what I hear when I put up that. Well, I don't watch five hours. Someone is. Okay? Nielsen is the the source of this. Okay? They make phone calls. And they know. And advertisers know you're watching because they wouldn't spend millions of dollars putting together advertisement if nobody was watching. So someone's watching. 
And I want you to notice that we spend, and notice, by the way, um, these numbers go up real quick, very, very important. These numbers go up the older you get. So if you think, oh, those dumb teenagers are bringing this thing down, you're wrong. Teenagers are the smallest segment of, of adults, meaning 18 and older, uh, of adults that are using this kind of technology. The largest group is, is my generation. Anywhere from, from really 40 to 55 is the largest group of TV and, and, and entertainment watching. And so we are consuming 11 hours a day of entertainment. There is not a point for us to read the scriptures to be still and know that I am God. Because we have radio, television, we have our phones, we have our tablets, we have our internet. We have no need to be alone, no need to be quiet, because we are gluttons with regards to our entertainments. It's not just TV. For some of you, this last week you spent all manner of hours on Facebook and Twitter Playing countless hours of video games, whether on your phone or through a console. Games like Angry Birds, Bejeweled, Words with Friends, Clash of Clans. I could go on and on. We're gluttons. Unrestrained over consumption. One author put it this way. We turn to screen time instead of turning to prayer. We pause to check Facebook instead of pausing to meditate on scripture. We seek out a piece of fried bread instead of seeking the bread of life. We fill our lives with comfort food and comfort games and must see TV and must engage social media in order to fill my time and my life apart from God and his holy word. Entertainment can bring us to gluttony. How about our extravagant living? Our extravagant living. Another form of gluttony is having the best of everything. To never go without. In America, there is a constant pursuit and craving for the next best thing. The moment that I, the Apple iPhone is announced, people will say of their old phone, this is a piece of junk. Why? Because now there's something that replaces it. We do this with cars. We do this with homes. We do this with television sets. We have to have the next best thing. And our companies love it. Because how they advertise is that you and I are something less because we have last year's model. And so we've got to catch up. And our greedy and covetous hearts look at our neighbors and, and see how happy they are because they've got this thing in their house or this thing in their, in their car. And we say, what about me? I can't be happy with what I have in last year's model. I'm somehow lacking as a result. We have an insatiable appetite as Americans that we always have to have more. And it's no wonder we find ourselves, the average American family, more than $20,000 in debt. It just doesn't add up. Here's the problem. As a people, we live like kings instead of the king of kings. And God is concerned about it. Notice there's one final one, and one that is missed so often. That's the expending of our resources. 
Gluttony is found in the unrestrained overconsumption. One church father asked this question. He said, while all other of the seven deadly sins hurts others, therefore reason to be called a sin, gluttony seemingly hurts no one. And if it does, the only person it hurts is the one who's the glutton himself, and that's his or her decision. But what the church father failed to understand is that gluttony does, in fact, hurt others. When we gobble up resources to take care of our lavish living as a people. When others are living without. The amount of food and the amount of resources that we here in America on an average day waste could take care of many times the needs of an entire other family. But we don't care. It's all about us. We think that we'll always have it. So we leave our water running. We leave the refrigerator door open. We throw away food. We get rid of clothing that we seemingly don't need anymore because we can go buy new stuff. I was convicted this last week reading the the postmortem of our last Uganda trip. Kate Duff shared what went on in Uganda and I was broken hearted. She talked about that one of the great things that they were able to do, her and, and Linda Millette, was to be able to buy uh, items, okay? Not new PlayStations, not new Xboxes for the children. But listen, they were able to hand out, let this sink in, one pair of underwear to each child. One pair. Girls were happy that they got feminine products to be able to take care of their needs. Kids were happy when they got a toothbrush and toothpaste. Brothers and sisters, there is a pox on the American culture where we consume, consume, and consume, and we leave our friends and our neighbors in these other parts of the world lacking in basic necessities. Because we overconsume. We don't think about it. We've always had it, and we always will, right? God says of the church, something must be different. We are indirectly starving the rest of our planet. And the question is, in light of our own gluttonous tendencies, how much do you and I really need? How much do we need? And and here's where you need to be sober and you need to really think. And you don't need to point fingers and, and say, well, let's talk about this person or that person. Let's just begin with ourselves and ask the question, how can I reduce my footprint, my gluttonous footprint, so that I can be a blessing or benefit to others? So we put it in its proper place. Gluttony is... Is over uh, consumption with regards to eating, yes. But it's unrestricted and unrestrained over consumption in all manner of things. And it does hurt others. But notice, gluttony hurts the individual. And I want you to know, you may, you may say, well, how really, how am I hurting? It's really not hard to forget about the children of Uganda as I'm living lavishly here in America. I can forget about them relatively quickly. So my job is to convict you and, and, and to remind all of us of what gluttony can do to us as an individual. Notice, recognizing that gluttony is poisonous. It's poisonous. 
When gluttony takes root in our hearts, it divorces us from the life that God wanted us to have. It demands over and above what is natural, and as a result, it brings us out of balance. Paul says in Philippians, write this passage down, Philippians 3.19, that their end is their destruction. Whose end is destruction? Paul goes on, those who have made their God their belly. See, we worship falsely. We worship the God of consumption. We worship the God of overindulgence. We worship the God of our belly. And just to again remind you, I preach this to myself far quicker and far sooner than I would want you to preach it to yourself. We make our belly our God. We replace the focus of God on our indulgences and our appetites. We allow our souls to be turned into mush instead of muscle. And let me share a couple ways that we allow this sin to be poisonous in our lives. Number one, we lose sight of our future. We lose sight of the future. If you have a gluttonous attitude or a gluttonous heart, you are living in the here and now. And you say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with enjoying the moment? What's wrong with seizing the day? Carpe diem, isn't that a motto we should live by? Well, the Bible says that kind of motto is the motto of the unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. Paul talking about the resurrection. And he says, listen, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus Christ isn't who he said he was and didn't do the things that he said he did, then we're like everyone else. We're like all unbelievers. And our motto should be, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Because you may be dead. And so grab every morsel off of that little apple of life so that you don't miss out on anything. But listen, not only are we told not to just live for today, but to plan wisely for tomorrow, we as Christians also have eternity to think about. We have the judgment of Christ that will uh, judge us what we did in the body while here on earth, and it will determine our rewards in heaven. And so when you are dying for that meal, when you are dying for that new gadget, when you are dying for all manner of things and you have to have it now, you forfeit the future for the joys of today. It's idolatry and it's sin. Number two, it becomes poisonous when we sacrifice the greater for the lesser. There's no greater lesson of this from Scripture than that of Esau. Turn in your Bible, so keep your finger in the book of Proverbs, and turn to the book of Genesis for a moment. Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. If you're following me in the Pew Bible, you'll find our passage on page 20. Page 20. Genesis 25. What an amazing story of absolute stupid gluttony. In Genesis 25, here's what we're told. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau, his brother, came from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some uh, of the red stew, for I am exhausted. 
Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Let's stop there. The birthrights is inheritance. And, and we know that Jacob and Esau's dad, Isaac, had, had a massive inheritance. Not only an inheritance of temporal things, but a massive inheritance of God's favor in their life. And, and Jacob, I'm sorry, Esau, had the, uh, the birthright. He had God's blessing. He had God's favor. And he would experience the joy of that favor for the rest of his life. But he comes home and he's hungry. Notice what he says. It says he's exhausted. And he says, uh, Jacob says, sell me your birth right now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now here's what I want you to know. Esau wasn't going to die. Yeah, he was probably hungry. Probably famished. But he wasn't going to die. Nowhere in the text does it tell us that Esau hadn't eaten for, for multiple days. He may have even had breakfast that morning. But you know how you feel when it's 5 o'clock, you miss lunch, you're starving. And you'll do absolutely anything to just get some food in your mouth. And so what does he do? For a meal, I want you to notice it says that Jacob was cooking stew. It doesn't even say it was good. just says it was stew says it was red probably overcooked so jacob gave esau bread and lentil stew probably didn't even have meat in it hey right, just beans and vegetables and he gave it and he ate and drank and rose and went this way thus esau despised his birthright Gluttony can be found in all manner of things and what we do is we have to have that thing now on demand and we're willing to give up something so important that we lose the greater for the lesser. Listen, teenager in this place, your boyfriend or girlfriend's telling you let's go a little farther and for a night of passion you give up something so dear and so important. For many of us, we purchase things, and we find ourselves in huge debt as a result. A purchase in the moment will take us a lifetime to take care of. A decision in the moment of a gluttonous heart will take years, and maybe we'll never get over it because of the regret and the shame and the sorrow that we feel. When we live gluttonous lives, we make decisions that the lesser is more important than the greater, and as a result of that, we are brokenhearted. How many of us, instead of showing self-control have done something that we've regretted. Gluttony is at the heart of those decisions. Number three, we become selfish and neglect the needs of others. The scriptures tell us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to do two things. To love our God with our soul, our soul mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Those are the two things. Gluttony fights those two pursuits. Gluttony says, God, you're not good enough, but another plate of food is. God, you're not good enough, but a brand new car is. God, you're not good enough, but that new gadget is. And gluttony says to others, instead of helping you, 
I'll help myself. Instead of giving to you, which God calls us to be generous, I'll keep it for myself. Gluttony is the great opponent to the great commandment and the great commission. Because it's all about us and not about others. Take a look at your bank account over the last month. And how much of your money was consumed by you? And let me ask you, how much happier today are you than you were in the month of July? You spent, you spent, you bought, you bought. For what? What did it gain you? You're no more happier than you were then. You're just more in debt. You've just wasted more money. And at the end of all of this, all of it will burn. So what are we, what are we doing? We're coming up and just, just a reminder, we're just a few short months away from Christmas. And we are going to pour all kinds of ungodly amounts of money out on our kids and our family. And listen, I haven't seen a single one of my kids' Christmas presents since January. That's bad spending of money. But we do it every year. Why? Because we're the most important thing. And because we can't say no, why would we tell our children they have to say no? Bless you. We become selfish and neglect the needs of others. There are people in need. There are people in need. And we need to help them. We serve our hungers instead of God. Every day there's a battle going on in our lives. Every day there's a a, a battle that wages. And it's a battle between two masters, God and you and I. Who's going to win? When our gluttony is out of control, we choose ourselves instead of choosing God. When God says enough is enough already, we say, no, give me another helping. Give me a little more. With just a little more, I'll be happy. With just a little more, I'll be at peace. With just a little more, I'll be filled with joy. God demands that we obey him. Doesn't suggest it. He commands it. He demands it. And the question is, are we serving ourselves or serving God? If gluttony is a part of our lives, then we are the master and God is something else. We sabotage our well-being. Gluttony in the way of pursuing food will at some point, maybe not now, but at some point, impact your well-being. It will raise your cholesterol. It will raise your blood pressure. It will bring all manner of issues and struggles at some point along the way. But we sabotage our well-being because we expend resources... With no thought of why. Now I want you to be aware that the Bible talks a lot about feasts and celebrations. In fact, there were mandatory feasts within the Jewish calendar. Where the finest of food and the finest of fare was to happen. Where banquets would go for manner of days. Where consumption was viewed as a good thing. Jesus' first miracle was that he would make more wine at a wedding that had already gone through all the kegs. Okay? 
So uh, what God isn't saying is restraint to the point of, of never having times of celebration. I think, quite frankly, there is something good about us gathering together on that last Thursday of uh, November and celebrating around the table and enjoying ourselves and feasting and being thankful for the good things that God has given. If you walk away with anything, please don't think that your pastor is saying, and here's the thing, it would make me a hypocrite, by the way, because you come over to my house, we enjoy food. We enjoy the good that God has had. We enjoy what food around a table can do to conversation and what it can do for for the intimacy of people who need to get to know one another. What I am not espousing is a legalistic or pietistic approach to not eating or to partaking of anything. But recognizing that we can sabotage our well-being by having too much of a good thing. This is not a creating of a list of do's and don'ts. But understanding God has given us good things to enjoy them, but to put them in their proper place. I was counseling a couple that I'll be marrying here pretty soon. And I told them about the importance of intimacy in their relationship, but that intimacy in their relationship wasn't the most important thing. And here's how I explained it. At some point, you're going to come back from your honeymoon. Who have you ever heard that said, hey, uh, we're still on our honeymoon. When did you guys get married? Last June? We're still on our honeymoon. And maybe sometime we'll get to life. No. There's a time for a honeymoon. And then there's a time to get to work. And there's a time to live life and all of that. And there's moments where, where you, you get away and you rekindle that romance. And you rekindle that fire. But then you go back and you get back to the daily grind and to the daily necessities of life. Because there's a proper place for everything. We can sabotage our well-being when we take a good gift of God's. And make it more than what God intended. Well, to be able to do so, it's going to involve some pondering. We've got to do some pondering. One of the things that we can do on a subject like gluttony is right away, is right away, start looking at someone else's problem. Someone else's tendency towards sin. There's a fabled story of an interaction between two of the greatest preachers since the first century, D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon. D.L. Moody was the rock star pastor from Chicago here in America who was revolutionizing a church in America. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in London, couldn't find a building big enough to be able to take care of all the people that wanted to come and hear him preach at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And during one of his visits to Great Britain, D.L. Moody said, before I go, I want to see the great Mr. Spurgeon and meet the Prince of Preachers. Where does he live? And he was told where he lived in London. And he approached the door and he knocked. And Spurgeon opened the door. And would you believe it, Spurgeon smoking the biggest and fattest and most robust cigar D.L. Moody had ever seen. Aghast, D.L. Moody said, oh my Lord, the great Charles Spurgeon given to the use of tobacco. To which Spurgeon took the cigar out of his mouth, took the butt of the cigar and pushed it into D.L. Moody's stomach and said, the great D.L. Moody given to the sin of gluttony. We are quick to point out one another's sins. We are quick to say, hey... 
I'm sure glad Mr. or Mrs. Overweight so-and-so heard this sermon today because I've thought for a long time it should be that. Some of you are thinking right now, must be really hard for Tim at three bills to preach a sermon like this. Let me tell you, it's no harder than any other sermon because here's what your pastor says. I don't fall to some sins, I fall to all. And so before you go and judge one another, ponder for yourself. And here's why. There's one person in all of the Bible who was called a glutton. Did you know that? He was called it twice. You know what his name was? Jesus. Now, I don't know if that determines that Jesus was an overweight guy. I don't know. I will tell you this. The guy was way too focused in on food. Every one of his stories, there was a great banquet. Food was being prepared. He loved food. Uh, The most important moments of Jesus' ministry, surrounded food. We call it the Last Supper, the feeding of the 5,000. We forget about the feeding of 4,000. It's all about food. His parables had food at the center of them. The scriptures tell us that there's a comparison and contrast going on in Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist was all about fasting. Jesus was about eating and drinking. Matthew eleven nineteen, The Pharisees come in and they accuse Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton. The only time anybody is accused of gluttony, listen, the people that did the judging were wrong. And what I would remind you of this morning is before you and I start pointing our finger at who we think we are gluttons, lest we be careful because the only example of anybody doing that in Scripture pointed to the perfect Lamb of God and they were wrong. And probably so are we. Because what we're learning today is gluttony is not so much about the mouth, but about the heart. Isn't that true of all sins? Isn't that true of all the sins that we deal with? It isn't what goes into a person that defiles them, Jesus said. But it's what comes out from the heart. It's not an intake issue as much as an out issue. Because the heart is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? So what do we do? We ponder for ourselves. Three questions. Three questions every one of us should ask. Number one, question number one. What captures my heart? That is, what fires me up? What keeps me dreaming? If you are dreaming about your visit to Golden Corral right now, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. If all you can think about is getting romantic with your wife right now and forget everything else, you've got a problem. Is it wrong to think that way? No, but but God has said put that in its proper context. If you're dreaming about all kinds of purchases that you're going to do and you can't live without it, if that's driving you, you've got a problem. What consumes your hours? Write that question down. Take a look at how you spend your time. What are you investing your time in? I think it is, it is a gluttonous congregation. Listen. A gluttonous congregation is a congregation where we can't find people to serve with our young people and student ministry and our children's ministry. You have received no less than five uh, emails or announcements that classes are not going to begin in the coming weeks. 
because we don't have people to serve. But you watched your TV, you went shopping, you did all your eating, you did everything, and forgot about the needs of the most innocent and most warm among us, the children. Because we're more worried about ourselves and our schedules and how we consume our hours than we would about teaching young people about Jesus Christ. God help us. What controls my happiness? That is, what puts a smile on your face? Where do you go to drown your sorrows? What makes you feel better? You see, if it's anything else but God, it's an idol. And so we've got to ponder these questions, not ponder them for someone else. Tim has to ponder these things for Tim. And he needs to be generally reminded by the Spirit. And, and I need to be open, listen, I need to be open and willing to welcome others into it. And say, listen, hey, I could use some help in this area. Would you hold me accountable in this area? Would you speak to me with regards to this? Because I know I can have some blind spots in my life. But it begins by pondering these questions. Notice finally, destroying gluttony, and I will close with this, is done through the right practices. I want you to get your pen ready. Don't close your Bible. Write down these passages and use these as a point of study. We destroy gluttony, first of all, by acknowledging our appetites. Your hunger for food isn't bad. Your desire for sex isn't bad. Your desire to to buy things isn't bad. Your desire to have things isn't bad. Your desire to be entertained isn't bad. Just last week, I took my wife to a concert, and we were entertained. We had a great time. We spent money, and we enjoyed ourselves, and it was a wonderful time. Is God frowning upon the Badal family? How dare they do that? No. God has told us over and over again, write these passages down. 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that though we are rich, we should not put our hope, our dreams, our desires... On our riches, but on God who gives. So thankful hearts, when God gives us an appetite, it's all right. Thank you, Lord, for this thing, this desire, this this want. It's within the line of Scripture. I'm going to enjoy it. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And he's given it to us for our good. For our enjoyment. So God wants you to have appetites. He created you with appetites. Find the right balance with them. Number two, strive for self-control. Strive for self-control. Proverbs 28, I'm sorry, Proverbs 25, 28 says a man without self-control is like a city without walls. Good luck defending yourself. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that self-control is a good thing. 1 Corinthians 9.27 tells us that we need to discipline our bodies, even at points to the place of beating our bodies into submission. It is good and right for us as parents to teach our children that we don't always need to say yes to be happy. But when was the last time we had a desire for something, had the ability to get it, And stopped ourselves and said, you know what? It'd probably be better that I don't pursue this thing. 
I'm going to show self-control. I'm going to show restraint. Because discipline is a good thing. The final one is become a glutton for the things of God. Become a glutton for the things of God. You really want to overindulge? You really want to overconsume? Turn that, that desire for overconsumption, that overindulgence, into things of God. John Piper's ministry uh, that he's well known for is the idea of being a Christian hedonist. Put all your desires that you would in this life and put them towards God and enjoy them. And you know what God says? God doesn't say, you know what, don't do that. In fact, in Isaiah, write this passage down, 55, 1 and 2. God says, come and eat, come and drink, come have your fill. He's inviting you to be a glutton for him. Pursue me. Take in all that you can. Psalm 34, 6. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Go to the buffet of the Bible instead of the buffet of food. Purchase and buy all you can of God instead of all the things in this world. You see, gluttony is an insidious disease that we've said is okay. But it's not because it steals our joy. It robs us of our relationship with Christ. And it keeps us pursuing little things over the greater things that God has given. Take time in these moments to come and ask yourself, is gluttony a problem? And seek the Lord for the help in the process. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, a sensitive subject. One that, Lord, I hope and pray that I've done faithfully, honestly, without hypocrisy, Lord. Oh, it's easy to, to point at others and say, fix this, and not to point a multitude of fingers towards myself. So, Lord, I pray that we would honestly do an assessment of our lives and ask, are we robbing ourselves of, of the good things you've given us by over-consuming those things? Lord, I pray that our gluttonous hearts in our personal lives would be addressed. I pray that the corporate gluttony of a church would be addressed. I pray for the national gluttony of a country would be addressed so that we might, in turning away from these little gods, might be able to embrace and indulge in the sweet things, the great things, the tasty things of you. Your scripture is sweeter than honey, we are told. Living with you is greater than life on our own. And Lord, let us indulge in those things so that we may experience a life of abundance and a life of joy and a life of peace and a life of contentment instead of the life of lack we have amidst all the surplus in our lives. Teach us, convict us, and forgive us so that we may honor and serve you in the days to come. Now send us forth from this place, Lord. We've sung your praises. We've prayed. We have fellowship together. Let that be a precursor for our week to come so that we may honor you in all that we say and do. Lord, whether we eat or drink, that we would do all things to the glory of of the one and only God. It's to you who should be praised. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.